Today um, is the first of what will probably be 20 messages from the letter of Paul to the Galatians, as its longer name is. So let me first connect this series with last last series that we were in. So we just went through seven what we called shaping virtues of Sovereign Grace Churches, which we called fruits of the gospel, things that would develop character qualities, behaviors that would develop as you really understand the goodness of God to us through Jesus Christ. And so those seven virtues were humility, joy, gratitude, encouragement, generosity, and godliness and servanthood. So those were the fruits of the gospel. So this series, Galatians, is the gospel. <laughs> and since it's spring, I think a way to, of picturing this is like the seven virtue series was like the seeds that we were planting in the garden, the things that we want to grow in our lives. But this series is about making sure the soil is good so that those things grow. We need our hearts nourished on the good news of all that we have in Jesus Christ in order for things like humility and joy and gratitude to grow. And that's worth spending a lot of time on the dirt, the soil of our hearts, I think. Um, that's really where the nutrients come from that make things happen. So that's why Galatians. And we'll be in this for, uh, for some time. Um, let me uh, begin by reading from Galatians 1, 1 through 5. That's our text for this morning, and then we'll pray. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, we thank you, Father, that you have given us this letter and the whole Bible to reveal your will, to reveal your character, to reveal to us the way of grace and peace, the way of thriving, the way of life and this morning, we need your Holy Spirit again to open up our hearts and minds to receive all that you have for us. Your heart is for us today. You're here to bless us. And we ask that we would be in a position to receive it with belief. Lord, build up your church today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you say to someone that you love who is starting to take a wrong turn in life. Maybe it's an adult child. Maybe it's a long-term friend. 
They were doing well. They were making good decisions. They were listening to good counsel. They were on a path to thriving. But then something changed. Somebody got into their head. An influencer who seemed to know what he was talking about got their attention. He caused them to doubt what they thought they knew. He made them question foundational assumptions about life and how you operate in the world. And, and he laid out a different path for them. And then they began to follow that new path. And you can see very clearly that this is a path that leads to destruction. And your heart aches for them. And you want to say and you want to do whatever you can to try and pull them back to the good path that they were on. The letter to the Galatians was written to people Paul loved who were taking a wrong turn in life. And it's a message that all people need to hear who are taking a wrong turn. Here's the background behind the letter. Galatia was the southern central region of the country we now know as Turkey. Actually, that massive earthquake that happened earlier this year happened in Galatia. So it's a real place. And this is where Paul and Barnabas planted four churches on their first missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts 13 and 14. They planted those churches by teaching good news about salvation in Jesus Christ. And we have an example of what they preached when they planted those churches. If you look in Acts 13, 38 and 39... This is an excerpt from one of his sermons. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So the gospel message is that believing in Jesus as Savior, frees you. It, it brings forgiveness for your sin, which is something that the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, could not do. Just keeping commands could not free you from your sins. All it did was kept you from sinning more when you would keep it, but you were still sinning. So it couldn't free you. It couldn't bring forgiveness. But Jesus Believing in Jesus brings forgiveness and frees you from what the law couldn't do. That was his message. That's, that's what they told people, and that's what they believed, and that's how churches got started in Galatia. Well, afterwards, Paul found out that influencers had come in with a different gospel. And this gospel seemed to make sense to the people, and it seemed to come from people who knew what they were talking about. So we have an example of their gospel, and it's in Acts 15, 1 and 5. Here's what they preached in their own words. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. 
So these are people who are Jewish believers. They, they believe Jesus is the Messiah, that you must believe in him as the, the anointed one who came to save us. But that's not the only thing you need. You also need to keep the law. If you're going to follow the Jewish Messiah, you also need to keep the Jewish law the first mark of which is circumcision, the sign of the covenant that you're part of God's people. And if you do that, then you can be saved. This was the wrong term, the wrong turn. <laughs> this is what alarmed Paul. He knew that if you follow this different gospel, it's going to be your undoing. Throughout the letter, Paul describes this wrong turn in terms of going from freedom to slavery. In chapter 5, verse 1, he put it this way, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The, the gospel Paul preached that he planted churches with is a gospel of freedom, of liberation in Christ, forgiveness of sins being just the tip of the iceberg of what the freedom is. But this false gospel that others were bringing was going to enslave them. It was going to bring them into bondage and drain the life out of them. There are 12 references in the letter to the Galatians that have the idea of freedom or deliverance in it. And all of them are connected to the true gospel. There are 21 references in the letter to the ideas of slavery, compulsion, captivity, and all of them are associated with the false gospel. It's freedom versus slavery. It's gospel versus other gospel. So he writes them a letter to bring them back to the real good news about Jesus, and he tells them the gospel again, the gospel that leads to freedom and life. And that's what the letter is. And this is all to our benefit that we have this letter. Because we still have it because it's not just a problem that was 2,000 years ago in a place that now doesn't, isn't called Galatia. <laughs> It's not just a 2,000-year-old problem. It's a present problem. It's an every-generation problem. We also can lose sight of what the good news of Jesus Christ really is. What should feel like freedom to us can over time start to feel like a slavery, like a duty, like a, I must do this, I must not do that or else. And so that there's no joy in being a Christian. There's no meeting each new day with expectation of God's goodness. There's no eagerness to live out the will of God, conscious of the smile of God upon us. And that state makes us open to other ideas, to other influences, to other things that look like salvation. The letter of Galatians exists to turn that around for us. The gospel of Christ is where the real freedom is, and so that's why we're going through this letter. We want to deepen our experience of the freedom and the joy, the liberation that Jesus comes to give us. So that's the background. Now let's get into the letter itself. 
So what does an apostle say to people that he loves who were doing well and who have taken a serious wrong turn from freedom into bondage? Well, the opening greeting is a summary of really what the whole letter is going to be about. There are themes that are introduced here in the first five verses that are going to be expanded on at length. So here's the first theme, which is the credibility of the gospel messenger. He starts with his credibility, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So one thing you may have picked up on when we read that is there's a note of self-defense in it. Not defensiveness, as in a sinful protection of personal honor, but definitely a defense of Paul's credentials, his credibility as the one who brought the message to these people. Before he even gets to saying hello, he he feels the need to establish where his authority came from to preach the gospel and plant their churches. He describes himself as an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So it's like he's saying, listen, friends, I know there are some people who are telling you something new, and they're telling you that that Paul guy, he left out some really important information. Um, It calls into question whether you should have ever listened to me, whether I know what I'm talking about. But I want you to know I didn't appoint myself to this role of apostle. And I wasn't even appointed merely by other people, though though a church sent me out. The church of Antioch sent me. It wasn't just them. It wasn't me. I didn't become an apostle from man or through man. I became an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. The resurrected Savior Himself commissioned me to go and preach the gospel, his gospel. The one who made the gospel is the one who sent me out to tell it. Like, you can't go higher than that in terms of authority. Like, that's a badge that will get you in any place. God God is with me, right? He's the one who did this. He appointed me. That's why I'm authorized. He's probably thinking here of the Damascus Road experience where he met the risen Christ, And later on, he heard the word that God gave to Ananias, that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. And most of these Galatians were Gentiles. They were not from a Jewish background. So he comes with authorization from the highest levels to tell the the Galatians God's way of saving people from their sins. So he starts with defending his credentials, not to brag about himself, but to gain a hearing, another hearing, to teach the truth about salvation. Because you can have the right message, but no one will listen to it if you don't trust the messenger. So he's going to go back and say, look, God is the one who sent me this. God's the one who told me this. I'm just relaying the information. 
and is the real thing. So somebody might say about Paul, well, how do we know you've been commissioned by God himself? Anybody could say that. Lots of people are feeling like, hey, the Lord told me uh, to say this and go and do that. I mean, people are doing that all the time. So what? Well, anticipating that question, Paul adds one more thing to the greeting. Paul, an apostle, and all the brothers who are with me. <laughs> In other words, I'm not just some crazy self-appointed lone ranger. There are many other people with me in this ministry and in this gospel. This isn't just me. I'm not acting on my own. I'm in fellowship with people. I'm planting churches with people, people who know me, people I'm accountable to as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So you don't have to take my word for it on what the gospel is. Pick any one of the brothers, and they'll tell you the same thing. They'll back me up. There's a couple of things we can learn from this defense of his credentials. One is a reminder that a true gospel preacher is more likely to be found in the context of community and accountability than out on their own. I say more likely because even... Even in the community of faith, even in the local church, there can be those who arise and speak twisted things, something that Paul would say to the elders of Ephesus later, from among your own selves there will arise people. But there is safety in being a part of a local church where ideas can be weighed and challenges can be made and, and there can be sharpening through the interaction with others. Even Paul didn't minister alone. He almost always had others with him. He was with the brothers wherever he went. There is protection in, in community, in plurality, and that's why we have a plurality of elders who lead the church because it's not just one person. We all talk. We all interact. We all sharpen one another. There's safety in that. That's one thing. Here's the other learning point, though. It's a reminder that we do have an adversary in the devil, and one of his tactics is to make people doubt the credibility of the messenger so they'll doubt the credibility of the message. Because if a person who told you all about Jesus becomes suspect... If you start to doubt their, doubt their character or their intelligence or their motives, then you will also doubt what you learned from them. And then that will open you up to all sorts of other ideas and influences. I really think that is playing a big role in the de-churching trend that we're seeing right now in our culture. Whether the reason is real scandal with leaders or how pastors handled the pandemic, or race issues, or untrue and slanderous things that are said about church leaders, once you stop trusting the people who taught you, it makes you open to something else. And the devil knows that, so that's in his arsenal to cast suspicion on pastors and gospel preachers. 
But as we can see with the Apostle Paul, even good pastors speaking the true gospel will find occasion to have to defend their credentials because the enemy is an accuser of the brethren. It's one of his names. We should expect him to do it. We have to be discerning and remember that the adversary wants to keep people from hearing the gospel. And one of the best ways he has to defeat it is to sow suspicion in the ones who are preaching it. So how do you know if you have a good gospel messenger or a bad one? <laughs> the answer is in whether the gospel they preach is the true gospel that is laid out in the Scriptures. Because this word... The Bible is the authority, not the person saying it, but the Word itself. And that's what Paul gets to next in his greeting. The second theme of the letter is the essence of the gospel message. Immediately after saying hello, Paul gets to the crux of the issue that he's going to talk about at length for four chapters. It's the true gospel that saves. Here's what he says in verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the evil age. Let's stop there. That's the gospel message in short form. But he's going to bring in a whole arsenal of biblical support for this gospel later on. We're going to see in the letter that he appeals to the Old Testament many times. He's going to refer to Abraham. He's going to refer to the law. He's going to refer to Sarah and Hagar, Mount Sinai and Jerusalem, to the covenant with Israel, and so much more. Because what's he doing? He's saying, like, I'm not making this up. You've got a Bible. Go look at it. It's there. It's in the Old Testament even, this thing about Jesus coming to save. You just go look, and I'm going to help you look. I'm going to point you to it. That's what four chapters is going to be. He's going to show this way of salvation in Jesus. Is the, it's in the fabric of the entire Bible. You don't just have to trust Paul and what he's saying. Look for yourselves at the Scripture, and you're going to find the good news is always there. That's what makes him a good gospel preacher. You go look at this. <laughs> And I'll help you. <clears throat> so what's the gospel message? Let's take verses 3 and 4, one phrase at a time. And let's enjoy this. Enjoy this good news for us. <clears throat> it starts with the heart of God for each of us. What he wants us to experience. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is a word that we use really quick and easy, you know, kind of flows off the tongue. What does it mean, though? Well, grace is a big and beautiful word for a big and beautiful reality. It, it captures God's abundant generosity and His favor directed at the individual. In, in fact, directed at sinners, at lawbreakers, Messed up and broken people like any one of us. Grace isn't just generosity to people who are in need through no fault of their own and could use a break. 
No, grace is God's generosity and favor to people who actually don't deserve it. In fact, who deserve the opposite, who deserve disfavor and judgment because of our wrongs. Um, it's the difference between giving money to a poor person that you've never met and giving money to a poor person who robbed you yesterday. The first one is kindness. The second one is grace. God's generosity is favored to those who have sinned against Him and deserve punishment that justice requires. And Paul starts by saying, I want that for you. I want you to experience God's generosity and favor because that's what God wants for you. He wants you to experience this. It comes from God. May you be blessed with abundant generosity. May you experience it. May you know the undeserved favor of God in your life, His readiness to bless you despite your failings. That's grace. Grace to you. Here's another big and beautiful word. Peace. Grace to you and peace from God. Now, peace isn't just the absence of conflict, as in our home is peaceful. Nobody ever argues, which is probably not true anyway, but <laughs> you get the idea. It would be peaceful if nobody argued, right? This isn't that kind of peace. Peace isn't the absence of conflict, but the presence of well-being. It's the shalom of the Old Testament. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and give you what? Peace. Peace is the presence of God's rich and full blessing. To say peace to you is to wish that your, your soul would prosper for your life to lack nothing good, for you to be whole and sound and thriving. And to put it in our present day context, peace is like having the kind of life that the diet and fitness ads are promising you. You know those people that are always happy and healthy and just loving life. <laughs> I mean, we want that, right? That's why the ads are constructed that way. They know what we want. <laughs> we want to be happy and loving life and everything to be great with us. Well, peace, shalom, is that, but in your soul. You could be physically unhealthy, financially poor, have a life full of troubles, but your soul can prosper and not despair. You can look forward every day to something good. You can have peace. It's the kind of peace that Jesus said He would give in John 14, 27. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Because it's a peace of mind and of heart that's above the fray of this world. It isn't based on your earthly circumstances. It's based on your heavenly circumstances. The invisible realities of God's favor, His promises, His welcome, His forgiveness. 
And that makes us be able to sleep at night. Isn't that what we all want? Peace. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father want that for you too. But the only way to get it is by believing the heart of the gospel, which is the next phrase. So going back to verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. That's the core. That's the center of our hope for grace and peace. The Father and the Son planned from all eternity to deal with our sins in such a way that we don't bear the penalty for them, but rather God, taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus, bears that penalty himself. Jesus gave himself for our sins. This is the language of sacrifice and substitution. One person dies that others might live. One person bears the sentence that another person deserves. One person takes the blame and the punishments for crimes he did not commit so that the one who committed the crimes will not be blamed and punished for them. This is what Jesus did when he gave himself for our sins. And that is the only reason that God can be gracious to us and give us peace. Because the justice for our sins has to be satisfied. God can't say it didn't happen. God can't say there's no, there's no sentence for that. It's just. But if we're to bear the sentence ourselves, we perish for all eternity. But Jesus, being both infinite God and finite man, can bear the full judgment of God for millions of sins and millions of sinners and still live being raised from the dead. On the cross, he said, it is finished. He took care of it. He bore the wrath. He paid the penalty. That is the gospel message that we now preach. The dead of our sins paid in full the sentence of death carried out completely because Jesus gave himself for our sins and in our place. Believe and receive God's grace and full forgiveness. That is our gospel message through Jesus. This is more than a legal transaction in a courtroom. We could think of it that way, and it is that way, partially. But it's more than that. This is a personal act of love of God and Christ to us. He gave himself. That's more than a transaction. That's personal involvement, personal sacrifice to rescue someone. That's love, greater love as no one than this, that they lay down their life for his friends. This is the cross of Christ and the ultimate act of God's life-giving love. Now, why did Jesus do it? Why did God send him? Well, it is to have grace and peace, but what does grace and peace look like? Again, verse 4, He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. This is what it looks like to receive grace and peace through the gospel. This is the first place in Galatians where the idea of freedom or liberation comes in. To be delivered is to be freed from danger or from entrapment. And in this case, to be freed or delivered from the present evil age. 
That's what Jesus accomplished by dying for us. It doesn't take too much imagination to think about what that means, to be delivered from the present evil age. I mean, I doubt anybody who's paying attention to world events or political news or local news or even the news from your extended family network is thinking to themselves, this is paradise. You know, I don't want anything to change. I want it to stay exactly like it is. Nobody's saying that. <clears throat> because we live in the present evil age. It is a world full of things that break our hearts, things that tempt us to fear. And that's not just life in 2023. Paul wrote this, the present age, 2,000 years ago. That age was also evil. And it still is. It has been since sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. It's been the present evil age for as long as anybody can remember. <clears throat> and it will be until God completes the deliverance which has already begun through the cross, through Jesus Christ. The way to be delivered, I think I turned off my phone. The way to be delivered from this present evil age is to have the Lord Jesus Christ himself die for your sins. That's the way out. It's to have the power and penalty of sin broken in your life so you become a renewed person. It's to have the promise and guarantee of a broken world remade where renewed people will one day dwell forever. And that's coming for the believer. The world made new. To be delivered from the present evil age is a now and a not yet reality. Grace and peace already belong to you. God's favor is on you right now. Peace is available abundantly to you. And yet we have to live in a broken world that has evil in it. But it's being remade. One day the deliverance will be complete. So this is the gospel message summary. Grace and peace come to us from God through Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's real. This is yours through faith in Christ. Whether it was the first century or today. Grace and peace, deliverance and freedom come from what Jesus did on the cross and from nothing else. There's one more thing that Paul says to close out the greeting. And he just ends with the honor of the gospel giver. And this is in verses 4 and 5. The sacrificial death of Jesus to deliver us from this evil age is according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul is a guy who could never talk about the gospel for very long without breaking into praise. Without saying something like, to him be the glory. <laughs> Even though he was this great theologian, he was privileged by the work of the Spirit in his life to discern and write the deep truths of God. For him, the gospel was never just a doctrine to be believed. It was a reality to be rejoiced in and to thank God for. 
Notice for Paul the important part of his praise, or an important part, is the fact that the gospel comes from God the Father. He uses a description of God as Father three times in the opening five verses. You keep hearing the word Father, Father, Father. And that's the God and Father who, it was the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory. He uses that word a lot. This repetition of Father emphasizes the fatherly, relational love of God that is behind our deliverance from the evil age. It's, it's more than a legal transaction that he rejoices in. It's, the, it's more than the payment of a penalty. The gospel exists because of God's fatherly love for sinners. And so when we get to chapter 4, he's going to go into more detail about how we are adopted as sons. And we cry out, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. Because for Paul, it's not just a, a technical, theological thing. It's relational. I have a father. God has adopted me. He's called me. I'm his own son or daughter. And so that means he's, he's taken me on as his responsibility. He genuinely loves me. He's seeking after me. He's looking out for me. And that is the kind of thing that gets into your heart and not just your head. I like the illustration that David Powlison gave of God's fatherly love. Uh, he said it's like a dad at a park playground. And there are lots of kids there, lots of other people's kids. And he has no ill will towards any of the other kids. He generally wishes them all well. But when it comes to his own child, something more happens. He is much more alert to his child and what's happening with his child. If there's any bullying, if there's any danger, if there's any injury or injustice to his child, well, that arouses strong feelings of protection because he loves his child. He loves the child and wants him to thrive, wants her to thrive. And that is fatherly love without the sin that earthly fathers put in but the perfect kind with, with no mistakes complete wisdom that is the heart of God to those who become his children through faith in Christ the love is real it's active and watchful it's love that would even send his own son to die on a cross so that we might experience grace and peace, and be delivered from the present evil age. When that grips your heart, you'll do what Paul did. You praise and honor the giver of the gospel. To him be the glory forever and ever. There's something that we can learn from that, I think. The strongest defense against turning away from the gospel to something else is not just knowing the gospel but rejoicing in it like you won't be as susceptible to abandoning the gospel when it's bringing you amazement and joy when you're experiencing the freedoms when you're convinced of God being for you and promises going to be fulfilled like if you're getting life from it, if you're enjoying God and Christ and all that he's, He is for us, 
you just won't want to let that go. Why would you leave freedom for slavery? And everything else looks like slavery when you're experiencing the freedom in Christ. Now, I think the older saints will back me up on this, that the longer you live, the more you know that nothing is going to satisfy you except Jesus. Amen. That is right. Because you've tried everything, <laughs> and you found it out. But you found Jesus to be faithful. And you found a fountain of life there that you want to drink from. And so why would I go to some dried up old cistern someplace called money or health or whatever it is that we think that's going to do it for me? Why would I go there? That's just dry. You know where life is? Water? It's in Jesus. Knowing Him. And that's where freedom is. And it comes through the one who gave himself for our sins. So, as we go through Galatians, may the Lord impress this gospel into our heart and minds so that we can't keep from breaking out into praise. For our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, He loves us, Christ loves us, and grace and peace belong to us in Him, even now, in the present evil age. So let's pray. We're just starting, Lord, to look at this, and I just pray that You would open up our hearts to embrace all that You have to say. I think so often we live a little bit handicapped kind of struggling to see it all. Is it really that good? Now we ask for you to open our eyes so that we'll know it and experience it and bless one another with it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.